it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton, recording this week's episode on Wednesday, September 7th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, I'm a touch sleepy. How are you doing today? I also am a touch sleepy today. I had to do a lot of extroverting at my day job today, uh, which just really makes me into a lump. Oh, I was up until 3 a.m. reading League of Their Own fan fiction, so <laughs> your reason is better. Uh, I don't, I actually don't think it is. I think your reason sounds much better than mine. I mean, in terms of fun, yes, but fun. Uh, productiveness, probably you. We don't need to be productive at all times. It's, I think, a totally legitimate thing to do is to read League of Their Own fan fiction as a, a way to pass the time. Maybe maybe just more within waking hours, but yes, yes. Yes, yes. So that makes me think that you have been watching more A League of Their Own, if you've been watching it over again, or if you moved on to fan fiction. Um, it's a mix. So I've been rewatching scenes from it less so, I will say, in the last week, although partially because I had to go on a trip. But definitely been reading fan fiction. There are currently over 300 uh, stories based on the television series, A League of Their Own, on archiveofourown.org. And it just, it like grows daily. And I am a big fan. I, I don't know how I historically have felt about alternate universe fan fiction. I think mm-hmm. I've liked it. I don't think I've really gone out in search of it, though. But for this cast, it's such a, like, the whole point is, like, it's this core, like, family group. And so you can just, like, transpose them into these other settings. And sometimes those settings are less homophobic. And it's great. So although I am currently reading one set in old Hollywood, like 1940s Hollywood, oh. and where Darcy Carton's character is like a movie star. And it's so good. So I'm very excited about it. That's what I was up late reading last night. So alternate history. I'm not super familiar with fan fiction. So alternate hi- Alternate universe. Alternate universe. And that just means they take the characters and they just put them in a different fictional universe? Yeah. So, for example, Fifty Shades of Grey was originally a Twilight alternate universe, or AU, which I was trying to explain to my wife this morning on our coffee walk, and she, she was like, but he's not a vampire. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's an alternate universe. <laughs> so the characters don't have to be, like, what may, like, if the characters are not, if he's not a vampire, then, like, how is it still? It's like personality. I have the same questions Michelle does, I think. <laughs> it's the basic It's the basic personality and the dynamics between the characters. Oh, and just sort of, like, okay. how they would react in these scenarios. Like, if Edward wasn't a vampire and also was kind of into BDSM, I... <laughs> Uh, I've just heard kind of negative stuff about that series. But it was definitely a very, very popular one. And there are so many spinoffs specifically within Twilight. But then, because Twilight was such a massive fan fiction mm-hmm. thing. But yeah. then um, 
uh, just a lot of fandoms do that. A lot of people will do like high school AUs, which I'm like, I'm in my late 30s. I don't know if I need to read that. But <laughs> it's great if you're a teenager, right? It's like and everything just kind of makes it more, I leveled Hollywood. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. So if they're not playing baseball, what are they doing? Well, Greta, who is the Darcy Carden character, is, as mentioned, a, like, Hollywood starlet. And then Carson, the Abby Jacobson character, who, again, they kind of get into each other in the first episode. She is in the stenographic pool at MGM. And then she ends up working for Greta's character. And then they have, like, Greta's best friend is kind of, like, her PA who doesn't do anything. And so she hires Carson to like actually do stuff. (laughs) And it's just, you know, so you have these same like relation or very similar relationship dynamics, but Mm -hmm. then also the personality. And then you get to see like, how would like they get together in this universe and all this stuff. So it's great. I once read a Stargate Atlantis fic set in the old West, which was also great. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's I just, uh, I've been reading fan fiction online since like 1996 when it was Days of Our Lives. Huh. <laughs> and they were called just like stories. <laughs> it's like, do you want to read stories about these characters? Yeah. This is a deep rabbit hole that I would love to go down with you more, but uh, we need to move on and do our actual <laughs> nonfiction books podcast. All right. This is about nonfiction. <laughs> so uh, with that, uh, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Tor Books. So if you are a fan of epic fantasy, if you're a fan of Scott Lynch and or Joe Abercrombie, but you want something a little different, you want a hero who's like a bit of a mess, then The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan is for you in its Academy dropout slash disgraced noble heir Lacan Cordova's life is in shambles. All he's got going for him is one, he is a card sharp of considerable skill and two, a lot of maybe potentially a little too much wine. So they're, you know, those are the positives. So when the bizarre murder of his father robs him of even the off chance of redemption, Lacan decides to make amends another way. He's going to unravel the mystery behind the killing, even if it takes him to the underbelly of Sophrona, a city of danger, secrets, and merchant princes. Finding the truth is one thing. Finding the truth and staying alive is like a whole other thing. So make sure to check out The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan on sale May 7th. And thanks again to Tor Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be. Right? Right, girl. Like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series, Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. 
All right, so uh, now we're going to jump into uh, nonfiction in the news, which is where we talk about stuff that's happening in the wide and varied world of nonfiction. Uh, And this week we have another, I think, another sad story to report. Um, Last week, author Barbara Ehrenreich uh, passed away at age 81. She, I think, is best known for her book Nickel and Dimed, but she also did uh, her, I think, latest book uh, was a book called Bright Sided, which is about the challenges of optimism and like bright-sided thinking uh she a baruch of optimism basically uh so she died september 1st at a hospice center in alexandria virginia at 81 years old um she had a stroke um uh, her daughter um, said that she had been in declining health after a breast cancer diagnosis um and so i was in uh, facilities for much of the end of her life so um the washington post article we'll link to has a really really extensive obituary and biography of her life it was it was fascinating i'm have you ever read any of her books alice i have not i saw her in a chicago like maybe it was the chicago humanities festival i saw her give a lecture um Hmm. years and years ago and it was very interesting i don't remember any details i just remember being like oh wow (laughs) what an impressive (laughs) woman yeah i was just um i was reading the washington post article and she Um, wrote other books called Fear of Falling, The Inner Life of the Middle Class, uh, Bait and Switch, The Feudile Pursuit of the American Dream. Um, I read Nickel and Dimed in graduate school, I think. I was taking like a narrative reporting class, and that was one of the books we read um, to look at like immersive journalism and sort of how, at the time anyway, like it was kind of an early trend or like wasn't as prevalent as it is now, I think, of people like putting themselves into a story or really like making the porter or the journalist part of the story they were trying to tell. So um, Nickel and Dimed was one of the earlier books that did that, I think. And so um, it's really fascinating um, and a good like reminder that life is balanced very precariously when you don't have a lot of resources and support. And I don't think people really were talking about that as much until she brought it out to everybody's attention. Yeah, I can't believe that came out like 20 years ago. I know. Bright Sided came out in 2009. And then in 2018, she had a book called Natural Causes, an Epidemic of Wellness, uh, The Certainty of Dying and Killing Ourselves to Live Longer. So I think like kind of continuing this whole theme, right, of here's something that is very, like, here's an idea that is prevalent in the culture and what are its actual impacts or like how Mm -hmm. does it actually function, uh, which is work that should be done. So, yeah. Yeah. So we'll link to that story. Definitely encourage you to check it out. It has a lot of really interesting uh, information about her life. And then the second one, we don't do this very often, but uh, I came across a Book Riot article in the last week that really I thought was delightful and that people uh, who are listeners of this podcast would enjoy. Um, It was by Ashley Holstrom, and it's called Recommending Books Based on the Weirdest Facts They Taught Me. And so this is a book list of a bunch of books she recommends, along with at least one weird fact from that book. And so if you are a person who likes nonfiction because of facts and learning new things, I just thought the whole piece was really delightful. So We'll link that in the show notes as well because it's it's very fun. And one of the reasons we all love nonfiction so much is because weird facts. I love Ashley. She's a really big proponent of um, Little Free Libraries. Oh, cool. And will like – she gets really delighted when she sees like new ones. So on occasion – we don't talk super often, but I will text her when I, <laughs> when I come across <laughs> a new Little Free Library. I'll just take a picture. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. I didn't know that. Even more delightful things. All right, so with that, we're going to jump into new nonfiction. This is books that are out soon or already out that we think you might find interesting. So 
My first pick is called Thinking 101, How to Reason Better to Live Better by Wu Kyung An, uh, which comes out September 13th from Flatiron Books. Uh, and so this book is by a psychologist. Uh, she is a teacher at Yale, and she um, developed a course that she called Thinking that is designed to help students examine biases and how they show up in our lives, uh, biases and like other thought errors that we can make. And so the class became one of the university's most popular. She writes about like they give it in the biggest lecture hall at Yale and it's regularly filled with like more than 400 people. And so this book is basically everything that she teaches in that class. And so in the class and in the book, it looks at uh, thinking problems. So things like confirmation bias or delayed ratification or attribution and how those thinking errors contribute to larger issues and inequities. And so she uses her own research in cognitive psychology as well as the you know pioneering work that's happening in the field and um, kind of relates that through the book. And so each chapter is about a thinking error that you can make. She looks at why it actually happens. What is the like evolutionary reason that we make those shortcuts or that we have those kind of errors built into the way that we just just intuitively the way we think and how those errors have a like evolutionary reason usually uh she looks at some research that kind of explores how it happens and then she tries to give some tips on how you can kind of avoid that set of errors in your own life um how or approaches that you can take to try to help yourself miss those biases when they come up or work against them or work through them or whatever you want to say so um I like this a lot. It is very conversational. It's very friendly. Um, she talks about like activities she does in class with her students. So I don't know, something about like reading it right now is very like back to school feeling to me, which I like. And I like the way that she sort of structures it around science and then goes into the like sort of practical, like if you're worried about this bias showing up in your life, here are some things that you can do to try to stop that, which I really appreciate too. So that is called Thinking 101, How to Reason Better to Live Better by Wu Kyung An. Oh, that sounds really good. It's fascinating. Yeah, I feel like I don't pick up books like that very often, but when I do, then my entire sort of outlook on things shifts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll like, I'll like keep remembering things from it for like decades. So, uh, you would think that that would then make me pick them up more often. But no, that sounds that sounds really good. My uh, first new pick for this week is "Off with Her Head: Three Thousand Years of Demonizing Women in Power" by Eleanor. Herman, of course, I'm going to talk about this. So <laughs> this, it, it basically like goes back thousands of years to look at the history of like, you know, quote unquote, keeping women in their place. And the epigraph in the intro starts with a quote by Anne Frank, where she says, one of the many questions that have often bothered me is why women have been and still are thought to be so inferior to men. And basically that that she would like to know the reason for this. So... In this, she goes, the author, Eleanor Herman, looks at the sort of things that are said about women who are trying to, you know, gain power. Like, oh, she's unlikable. She's untrustworthy. She's too ambitious. She's like a spendthrift or all this stuff and breaks these down into these chapters. So the chapters include uh, her overweening ambition. Uh, why doesn't she do something about her hair? The dangers of female male hormones, the alarming shrillness of her voice, the mysterious unlikability of female candidates, which in particular, right, it's like that thing of, oh, of course I would vote for a woman. But then if it's a particular, like any particular mm-hmm. woman, it's like, oh, no, not them because X, Y, Z. And it does say sort of, you know, like that 
men will focus on things like the hair, voice, clothing, you know, body type. I, mm-hmm. I do think women do that too. But I think I it's part, but mm-hmm. it's because it's part of this whole patriarchal basis of um how we think about uh, particularly women in power, which is a relatively new idea as as something more widespread, right? Like again, because we are going back thousands of years, you are going to have these examples of women. They, she talks about Cleopatra, for instance. But who is known for her sexuality, <laughs> of course. Mm-hmm. But in terms of women having much more power than they used to, that has been within, you know, let's say like the last century or not even, which is depressing. But um, so what what are these ideas that are still keeping women down? What can we do to sort of counteract these, um, let's say, myths? Because they are. And again, they do. They, they do not just come from men. They come from everyone. Uh, because we we live in a society. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's fascinating. And again, just this way of like, how can we think differently about the world? Or how are we currently thinking? And why is that a mistake? So off with her head, 3000 years of demonizing women in power by Eleanor Herman. That sounds fascinating. And I'm really glad you talked about it. And I, your point about like women also falling prey to some of these, um, you know, biases and myths or whatever is super true. Um, I work in libraries and it's like primarily women and you can, but you can see how women who like don't act a certain particular way, like get demonized or pushed out or like treated differently because they're not behaving in the feminine way. Unintentionally, I think people don't, you know, think about it because it's so just embedded in everything. So anyway, great pick. I am very interested in that one also. All right, uh, my next pick is called The Godmother, Murder, Vengeance, and the Bloody Struggle of Mafia Women by Barbie Latza Naidu. It came out September 6th from Penguin Books. Uh, And so this is a a history book about uh, the Italian mafia, and specifically the women in the Italian mafia. So the kind of basic, or sort of the central story, or the the story that sets it up, is um, a woman called Pepetta Maresca, who was born and raised in the mob, and she, um, when she was a teenager, she was married to an older mob boss, and uh, he was murdered. And so then she, I think when she was 18, um, decided that she would avenge his murder. And so she spent, she killed uh, the man who killed him, firing 29 shots at him uh, in a small village in Italy. And so it is about her story, like what happened to her, how she lived her life as part of the Italian mob. But then it is also about all of the sort of other women who have um, had power or had power kind of by association or used under the radar types of power to really like influence particularly the Italian mafia uh, in uh, coastal Italy. There's a ton of reporting in this book. So they do the, a journalist. And so she um, went and interviewed Pepetta. She's an older woman now um, and just has these like, really vivid and like amusing and astute descriptions of her and how she exists in the world now. Um, but it does a ton of her own reporting just about the way that the um, Italian mafia has like part of the reason it's so successful and so like impossible to do anything about is because there's mafia ties at like every level of government and in every industry and in every organization. And so there's nobody who can really get a foothold to do anything about it because it's so just like enmeshed in Italy. And so the book is also about that, trying to sort of explain like what is even going on? How is the Italian mob 
work in that country? What do they do? Um, and then uses the story of mafia women to try and get at some of those things. So it was really interesting. I, when I picked it up, I thought it was going to be about the mafia in the United States. Um, I just didn't read the like description carefully. And then um, I started getting into it. And I was like, oh, no, this is all in Italy. But that was really interesting to me, too, because I don't know anything about that. And so I like this kind of in to that world. So The Godmother, Murder, Vengeance, and the Bloody Struggle of Mafia Women by Barbie Latska Nadu. Oh, dang. I feel like I don't think about the mafia that often. I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like, um, but no, that's fa- especially like the mafia as like, I don't think I think of it as still existing in Italy. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Chicago, frequently when people like don't understand how a business is still in business, we'll be like, oh, it's like tied to the mafia. But uh, yeah, I guess I just was like, and it's probably gone from it. So that's... That's part of it too, right? Yeah, like I I didn't really know that it was still like an active thing. But yeah, it sounds like it is still very much, very much a thing. Dang. Um, Did you know that apparently a lot of mafia stereotypes that are now practiced, or at least did become practiced later, or were practiced by Italian men who wanted to act like they were in the mafia, <laughs> were taken from the Godfather. Like the Godfather like invented them. Uh-huh. And then they were like, oh, and then now we're going to... Now we do them. It was like this weird self-fulfilling prophecy. That is weird. I did not know that. Oh, there's probably a name for that kind of phenomenon, but I don't know what it is. So (laughs) if you know, add us on Twitter. Anyway, my next pick is Africa is not a country. Notes on a bright continent by Deepo Faloyan. This clearly, it's about like mainly the West's view of Africa and seeing it as this homogenous whole when it is enormous and so diverse and um it's just yeah so they start kind of like there's there's this mention of the movie did you see independence day Mm -hmm. okay so do you remember at the end like spoilers when they destroy the alien mothership Mm -hmm. (laughs) and there's like there's like this uh montage of all of these like different countries that had like had participated militarily if you will in destroying the ships that were over their cities and they show every continent except for africa (laughs) and basically they show some people in africa celebrating but they're like these okay so they talk about this in the new york times review and they say quote these five shirtless paint smeared boys joyfully jabbing spears into the air and right so that's that was like 1996-ish, mm-hmm. I believe. And that was kind of like, here we go. So in Floyd's book, he starts talking about the Berlin Conference of 1884 to 85, which is when Europe was like, let's split up Africa. And they just started cutting it up into different pieces, which, uh, yeah. So then it kind of just goes forward into how it's thought of today. And this talks about... Not only the sort of colonial heritage, but then like dictatorships that are happening uh, and still happening in some countries, some of the rivalries uh, that are like within uh, Africa itself as a continent, which one of the funnier ones is uh, the debate over which West African country makes the best, um, I'm not going to say this right, Jolof rice, J-O-L-L-O-F, as well as uh, the African Cup of Nations. There's just like, there's there's so much, there's so much there, there, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And as well as talking about the, there's a whole chapter on 
uh, looting, uh, which talks about things like the treasures of Benin and how the, let's say, the British Museum, for example, <laughs> if it had the things that it had looted from other countries, if, if, I think there's this quote that's like, if 50% of them were taken out, it would be a small museum in every sense of the word. Like, and it's because it's just, they just took everything. Anyway, um, so it's, again, about, I feel like I don't see a lot of books about Africa and its current state, and especially thinking about it as as a whole, but within that whole talking about how different it is, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Because in the West, we have been given this picture for decades of it as this, again, like homogenous entity, which it absolutely is not. So uh, that is Africa is not a country. Notes on a bright continent by Deepo Faloyan. That sounds super interesting. I don't feel like I have anything useful to say after that. But yeah, I think it sounds... It's a it's a good a great topic to be writing about to try and give people a sense that like you want to learn like w- really learn what's going on and try to like see all of these differences. Um, I think that's really fascinating. So excellent pick. I have two additional books I wanted to just mention really quickly that I haven't had a chance to read, but that have both been on my radar uh, this week. So the first one is called The Chaos Machine: The Inside Story of How Social Media Rewired Our Minds and Our World by Max Fisher. Uh, So Max Fisher is a a New York Times investigative reporter. And so this book is a look at really like why social media is bad for us. And so he looks at how social networks have, quote, preyed on psychological frailties to create algorithms that drive everyday users to extreme opinions and increasingly extreme actions. So he gives kind of a history of that and then looks at all the way leading up into the 2020 election and the January 6th uh, insurrection uh, to look at all of that. So difficult read, I think, but I don't know, social media and how bad it is is on my mind a lot. And so that one was on my radar. Uh, And so my next one is uh, Year of the Tiger, An Activist's Life by Alice Wong. Uh, Alice Wong uh, was the editor of a really great anthology, Disability Visibility. Uh, And so this is her memoir. And so it is a look at the uh, a memoir by someone who lives with a disability and is an activist in that area. So it's a collection of essays uh, drawing on a lot of her other work. She shares a scrapbook of her life as an Asian American disabled activist, community organizer, media maker, and dreamer. Um, and every review I've seen of this one has talked about how good it is. So I am uh, I am excited to to pick that up. Alice Wong, yes, amazing. Everyone should support Alice Wong. And with that, let's hear from our second sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Albachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away with Murder by Trish Lundy. 
Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. All right. So uh, this week's theme is uh, women in sports, uh, kind of the history of women in sports, which we picked inspired by Alice's love for uh, the new A League of Their Own series. Uh, I also am a sports person, so uh, we're poking around and looking at books that talk about history of women in sports. So uh, my first pick is one that I feel like I talked about when it first came out. Uh, I think I did anyway. Uh, it's called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League by Frankie De La Cretes and Lindsay D'Arcangelo. Uh, and so in 1967, uh, this uh, to me is sort of like a league of their own except for football, kind of, uh, which I'm sure is a very simplified way to look at it. But uh, so in 1967, a Cleveland promoter recruited a bunch of women to compete in a traveling football league. Uh, it was obviously initially considered a gimmick, um, kind of like the... He says that, like the or the summary talks about it being like the Harlem Globetrotters, uh, but the women who signed up wanted to play football and were really serious about it. And so, uh, the book looks at the highs and lows of the National Women's Football League. They eventually were in 19 cities across the United States for over two decades, which is amazing to me. I had no idea. Uh, and so, the both authors do interviews with authors. They came from teams like the Detroit Demons, the Toledo Troopers, and the LA Dandelions, which um, that really makes me laugh. <laughs> uh, and so it's, you know, they have interviews with players. They have uh, just a history of the league, um, kind of how it contributed to uh, second wave feminism Title and activism around Title IX. Um, and so uh, kind of what they were doing. So I... Um, yeah, this one's been on my radar for a while. Now that football season is like gearing up again, I feel like freshly inspired to read it. So it's called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League by Frankie De La Cretas and Lindsay D'Arcangelo. Yeah, I don't really care about sports, but <laughs> I love this show. And you know what? When I saw League of Their Own, the movie, in like 1993, when mm -hmm. I was but a youth... <laughs> I really genuinely wanted to be a baseball player. Like, I was writing, like, papers in class about how I loved baseball more than anything. Now I'm kind of like, it's fine. But it was, like, my absolute number one for mm -hmm. maybe a year. And so when this – and, like, I love that movie. So when the show came out, I was just like, oh, my gosh. So, yes, I'm very much in the women's sports go ladies frame of mind yes. uh, at the moment. But there is a tie-in book, and by tie-in, I mean it's not officially a tie-in. <laughs> it's just <laughs> is on theme uh, for the show, which is called The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League by Annika Oreck. came out a few years ago. I bought it at a comic book shop, but it's, it's like a hardbound illustrated history. So this 
talks about the the history of the league from 1941 and uh, interviews a lot of the players. So you have these like really um, engaging drawings along with stories about the players, stories by the players, player statistics and sort of like, you know, moments in history from the league. And then Annika Oreck also, um, as well as, you know, compiling all this and writing the stories also illustrated it. So it's, I think it's like an easy, if you don't want to, you know, if you don't want like a, like an academic history of the uh, AG, AAGPBL, I always have a hard time with that, then this is a good, I think, intro to it. Or if you just want some extra background on it, um, it's a very approachable book. So again, that is The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League by Annika Oreck. Excellent. That one sounds really fun. Yeah, I I don't think I watched The League of Baron quite that early. I think I got to it a little bit later, but it is such a great great fun movie i was a softball player through high school like a recreational softball player so i remember watching it and being like oh man those people are so cool and i wish that i could do that and just oh such a good movie that's so fun i had the uh soundtrack to league of their own which is a lot of 40s music and <laughs> they also have there's like a song right which is like they're little official Mm -hmm. song that they sing together and when there's a point in the series when they sing it and i literally shrieked (laughs) i was sitting there with my wife who was not familiar with it had not seen the movie uh i shrieked and then started loudly singing along (laughs) and it was just a a moment of joy what a wonderful time for everyone how could she have not seen the movie she was born in the 90s i don't know what the heck (laughs) I just, it feels like <laughs> such a, like, seminal movie. I don't know. We watched it right after we finished the series because she was like, I would like to see more of this. So oh, that's excellent. Yeah. yeah. So far, I've only watched the first episode of the series. My sister and I are watching it together, and we have just, like, not been in the same place enough to watch beyond that. But it was just a real, real delight. It is. Yeah. Um. All right. So my next pick, uh, getting back to... No books. <laughs> As Dust Bowl Girls, the inspiring story of the team that barnstormed its way to basketball glory by Lydia Reader, which barnstormed, what a great word. So this is a book uh, set in the 1930s, and um, he, it's about a, a guy named Sam Babb, who was a basketball coach. And he, like, obviously things were really bad because it was a Great Depression, and so he... Um, like wanted to try something new. And so he looked around in the communities around the college where he coached in Oklahoma and he recruited a bunch of women to offer to play for his basketball team, the Cardinals. He gave them a free college education in exchange for playing basketball. And so uh, women joined his team. Uh, He coached them and then they started to like come together as a team and they came together with love of the game and like loyal to each other and they began to win games. And so this is a inspiring sports story um the the description talks about it being like uh the boys in the boat which is one of my very favorite sports books historical sports books uh and so this goes on the follows the cardinals uh journey all the way to a showdown with the um national championship basketball team so um it is about a time when female athletes were facing a lot of scrutiny and so people were saying that women's sports were unhealthy and that it was unladylike to participate but these women came together and then kind of became an unlikely group of uh, trailblazers in the the sports arena and sort of like an inspiring sports journey of women playing basketball in the great depression so 
Dust Bowl Girls, the inspiring story of the team that barnstormed its way to basketball glory by Lydia Reader. Babe Diedrichson was really impressive as a person, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, she was on the basketball team that they played in the national championship. So lots of, like, lots of cool history stuff in there, too. And just, like, such an amazing, I was going to say sports player. That's not, <laughs> that's not what people say. Sports okay. person. Yeah, the person who plays sports. Um. Anyway, so, okay. My next pick is Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues by Andrea Williams. This is a in tribute to Max as her whole storyline on A League of Their Own. She mm-hmm. is the black pitcher who is rejected immediately in episode one from the attempting to get on the in the within the AAGBPL, and she is determined to be a pitcher no matter what. Effa Manley was not a baseball player. <laughs> So, like, it says baseball's leading lady. What it means is uh, she was a co-owner of one of the teams in the Negro League. This was uh, the Newark Eagles. She was the first and only uh, woman inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And her story is really interesting, not only because, like, this book talks about her and, you know, her sort of how she ended up co-owning this team with her husband, Abe Manley, but also the history of the Negro National Leagues and this which started in the 1930s and ended in uh, 1948 uh, which at first you're like oh no right they're over which then what happened and the answer is that the color barrier was broken by Jackie Robinson who uh, started playing in 1947 with uh, is it I think it's just a major league baseball I don't Mm -hmm. know they're the main that that thing and then um they were then accepting players of color after that um, slowly and then I think pretty quickly by the 1950s. So, but from 1933 to 1948, you had the Negro League and they were, you know, frequently run by black owners. They were coached by black managers. They were cheered on by black fans and, of course, had black athletes playing. And so, sort of, there was this very particular space that was created due to racism and segregation but then you know had it's you then sort of have your own space and can make a a positive from a negative i don't i don't know i feel like any kind of when i think about this thing i think about sort of things like um i've been talking to my wife about like gay bars in chicago where originally they're created to be safe spaces but in some ways it's it's and it's like oh that shouldn't have to happen but it's also good to have safe spaces i feel mm-hmm. like it just like it brings up this whole complicated conversation but mm-hmm. this and like effa manley's like position again as the only woman inducted to the national baseball hall of fame is so fascinating this book came out in 2020 or 2021 um so it's pretty recent and i'm excited and hope that they will have more books come out soon about the um black women who were participating within like sort of the the baseball spectrum in the 20th century Mm -hmm. Uh, so again that is baseball's leading lady effa manley and the rise and fall of the negro leagues by andrea williams yeah that's a really good pick and really fascinating i did not realize that there was only one woman inducted into the baseball hall of fame that is that's not shocking exactly but it kind of is you know what i mean yep Yep. 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 <laughs> it's not the best. Yeah. And I want to say I also appreciate trying to give more space to the stories about people of color in sports. Um, one thing we both noticed when we were doing research for this article is that there's, or this episode, there's a real lack of books by people of color about 
sports, uh, particularly like history of sports. So I'm excited that there's maybe more of that coming because um, that's definitely an area that I'm, people are interested in and I'm interested in. I hope we'll see more of. Well, I mean, and even stuff like, uh, not to bring it all back to a league of their own again, however, one of the reasons Abby Jacobson wanted to create the series was sort of filling in these gaps like of like queer spaces and, and things for people of color that were mm-hmm. missing from the movie because it was 1993. And right in the movie, you just have there's like a black woman who throws a, a pitch, like or mm-hmm. she throws a ball to Ellen Sue Gotlander. Sorry, not to nerd out about it. But um, and it's she's like an amazing pitcher, and you're like, oh wow, there we go. And it was like 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And in this, you have the narrative split between um Carson and Max. Yeah. Max played by the gorgeous Shantae. I mean, oh my gosh. Anyway, I just really quickly wanted to mention the book Curveball, the remarkable story of Tony Stone, the first woman to play professional baseball in the Negro League by Martha Ackman. This is kind of if you are interested in Max Chapman's story and would like, you know, more information on the uh, one of the women who inspired her character. Uh, Tony Stone definitely is she uh, played on the Indianapolis Clowns, which was Negro League's top team. I know. <laughs> but you know what? It's better than a lot of baseball team names. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It is not racist. So that's great. Yeah. And then uh, she played with the Indianapolis Clowns and then also with the Kansas City Monarchs, which Monarchs is good. That is good. But yeah. So Curveball by Martha Ackman. Excellent. That's another really great pick. Uh, so we will wrap up this episode as we normally do by talking about the books we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. So last episode, I talked about how I was reading a young adult book called My Imaginary Mary by Cynthia Han, Brody Ashton, and Jody Meadows. It was like a weird YA adaptation where Mary Shelley and Ada Lovelace were magic, had magic powers and uh, invented oh, a yeah. person. Yeah. I ended up not finishing it. I got like a third of the way in and I was just like not... I was just not feeling it. Like, I don't think it was a bad book. It just, like, wasn't quite wasn't quite what I wanted at the moment. But it did inspire me to pick up another book about Mary Shelley, uh, Romantic Outlaws, The Extraordinary Lives of Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley by Charlotte Gordon, uh, which is this enormous dual biography of Mary Shelley and Mary, her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. I don't know. I usually have a problem with really giant biographies, but there's something about it, like, being fall and being, like, Halloween hunting season that just makes me think about Mary Shelley and like settling in with a really big book. So I'm going to try see if I can get into this one this time around. So Romantic Outlaws by Charlotte Gordon. Oh, that's excellent. Just to finish my League of Their Own theme for this episode, (laughs) (laughs) I am doing the uh, audiobook version of Abby Jacobson's book, I Might Regret This, Essays, Drawings, Vulnerabilities, and Other Stuff which uh, she does do a lot of drawings in it. I checked I checked out the audiobook and the ebook so that I could listen to it, but then look at the drawings, which nice. sorry if anyone is trying to access <laughs> from the Chicago Public Library system. But it's a pre- I think it's like a six hour audiobook. It's pretty quick. Yeah. And in chapter two, she talks about falling in love and particularly falling in love with a woman for the first time uh, who the internet sleuths say, is maybe Carrie Brownstein from Portlandia, which <laughs> that's not, that's just an ale- alleged, allegedly. Got it. But it's very fascinating. And she's very, when it says vulnerability, she is very vulnerable and very in her feelings, which uh, as someone who grew up in the 90s, I'm a little uncomfortable with, but <laughs> uh, she also grew up in the 90s. So who knows? Different people. Um, but no, I really am liking it so far. And I love Abby Jacobson's like weird voice. It's just so particular and... um yeah, it's great. 
I love it. Can I ask, has this A League of Your Own obsession kicked the Lincoln obsession, or are you still, like, way into Lincoln still right now? It's a good question. I definitely have a lot of Lincoln books that are, like, waiting on my shelf. Mm -hmm. And so, basically, I will circle back to you and let you know when the League of Their Own fanfic well begins to run a little dry. Got it. If that ever happens. I can't imagine that ever happening. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay. In conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. If you have a few minutes, we would love it if you would take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That helps people find us more easily. And then while you're there, you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I am Kim Ukara. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.